that he will invite me to remain his guest overnight. He proves uncourteous, however, not even inviting me to partake of coffee. Evidently, he has become so thoroughly accustomed to the abject servility of the Armenians about him, who would never think of expecting reciprocating courtesies from a social superior, that he has unconsciously come to regard everybody else, save those whom he knows as his official superiors, as tarred, more or less, with the same feather. In consequence of this belief, I am not a little gratified when, upon the point of leaving the threshing-floor, an occasion offers of teaching him different. Other friends of the Mudirs appear upon the scene just as I am leaving, and he beckons me to come back and bin for the enlightenment of the new arrivals. The Armenian's countenance fairly beams with importance at thus being, as it were, encored, and the collected villagers murmur their approval but I answer the Moodier's beckoned invitation by a negative wave of the hand, signifying that I can't bother with him any further. The common herd around regard this self-assertive reply with open-mouthed astonishment, as though quite too incredible for belief. It seems to them an act of almost criminal discourtesy, and those immediately about me seem almost inclined to take me back to the threshing-floor like a culprit. But... The Mudir himself is not such a blockhead, but that he realizes the mistake he has made. He is too proud to acknowledge it, though. Consequently, his friends miss, perhaps, the only opportunity in their uneventful lives of seeing a bicycle ridden. Owing to my ignorance of the vernacular, I am compelled to drift, more or less, with the tide of circumstances about me. Upon entering one of these villages for accommodation, and make the best of whatever capricious chance provides, my Armenian manager now delivers me into the hands of one of his compatriots, from whom I obtain supper and a quilt, sleeping from a not over-extensive choice on some straw beneath the broad eaves of a long granary adjoining the house. I am for once quite mistaken in making an early breakfastless start for it proves to be eighteen weary miles over a rocky mountain pass before another human habitation is reached a region of jagged rocks deep gorges and scattered pines fortunately however i am not destined to travel the whole eighteen miles in a breakfastless condition not quite a breakfastless condition perhaps half the distance is traversed when while trundling up the ascent i meet a party of horsemen a turbaned old Turk, with an escort of three Zaptias, and another traveller, who is keeping pace with them for company and safety. The old Turk asks me to bin Bekalim, supplementing the request by calling my attention to his turban, a gorgeously spangled affair that would seem to indicate the wearer to be a personage of some importance. I observe, also, that the butt of his revolver is of pearl inlaid with gold, another indication of either rank or opulence. Having turned about and granted his request, I, in turn, call his attention to the fact that mountain climbing on an empty stomach is anything but satisfactory or agreeable, and give him a broad hint by inquiring how far it is before ekmek is obtainable. For a reply, he orders Azaptia to produce a wheaten cake from his saddlebags, and the other traveller voluntarily contributes three apples, which he ferrets out from the ample folds of his cummerbund, and off this I make a breakfast. Toward noon, the highest elevation of the pass is reached, 
and I commence the descent toward the Erzingen Valley, following for a number of miles the course of a tributary of the western fork of the Euphrates, known among the natives in a general sense as the Frat. This particular branch is locally termed the Karasu, or Black Water. The stream and my road lead down a rocky defile between towering hills of rock and slaty formation, whose precipitous slopes vegetable nature seems to shun, and everything looks black and desolate, as though some blighting curse had fallen upon the place. Up this same rocky passageway, eight summers ago, swarmed thousands of wretched refugees from the seat of war in eastern Armenia. Small oblong mounds of loose rocks and boulders are frequently observed all down the ravine, mournful reminders of one of the most heart-rendering phases of the Armenian campaign. Green lizards are scuttling about among the rude graves, making their habitations in the oblong mounds. About two o'clock I arrive at a roadside khan, where an ancient Osmanli dispenses feeds of grain for travelers' animals and brews coffee for the travellers themselves, besides furnishing them with whatever he happens to possess in the way of eatables to such as are unfortunately obliged to patronize his cuisine or go without anything. Among this latter class belongs, unhappily, my hungry self. Upon inquiring for refreshments, the kanji conducts me to a rear apartment and exhibits for my inspection the contents of two jars, one containing the native idea of butter, and the other the native conception of a soft variety of cheese. What difference is discoverable between these two kindred products is chiefly a difference in the degree of rancidity and odoriferousness, in which respect the cheese plainly carries off the honors. In fact, these venerable and estimable qualities of the cheese are so remarkably developed that after one cautious peep into its receptacle, I forbear to investigate their comparative excellencies any further. But obtaining some bread and a portion of the comparatively mild and inoffensive butter, I proceed to make the best of circumstances. The old kanji proves himself a thoughtful, considerate landlord, for as I eat, he busies himself picking the most glaringly conspicuous hairs out of my butter with the point of his dagger. One is usually somewhat squeamish regarding hirsute butter, but all such little refinements of civilized life as hairless butter or strained milk have to be winked at to a greater or less extent in Asiatic traveling especially when depending solely on what happens to turn up from one meal to another. The narrow, lonely defile continues for some miles eastward from the Khan, and ere I emerge from it altogether, I encounter a couple of ill-starved natives who venture upon an effort to intimidate me into yielding up my purse. A certain Mahmoud Ali and his band of enterprising freebooters have been terrorizing the villagers and committing highway robberies of late around the country. But from the general appearance of these two, as they approach, I take them to be merely villagers returning home from Erzingen afoot. They are armed with Circassian guardless swords and flintlock horse pistols. Upon meeting, they address some question to me in Turkish, to which I make my customary reply of Takchi Binmus. One of them then demands para, money, in a manner that leaves something of a doubt whether he means it for begging or is ordering me to deliver. 
In order to better discover their intentions, I pretend not to understand, whereupon the spokesman reveals their meaning plain enough by reiterating the demand in a tone meant to be intimidating, and half unsheathes his sword in a significant manner. Intuitively, the precise situation of affairs seems to reveal itself in a moment. They are but ordinarily inoffensive villagers returning from Erzingen, where they have sold and squandered even the donkeys they rode to town, meeting me alone, and, as they think in the absence of outward evidence that I am unarmed, they have become possessed of the idea of retrieving their fortunes by intimidating me out of money. Never were men more astonished and taken aback at finding me armed, and they both turn pale and fairly shiver with fright as I produce the Smith and Wesson from its inconspicuous position at my hip and hold it on a level with the bold spokesman's head. They both look as if they expected their last hour had arrived, and both seem incapable either of utterance or of running away. In fact, their embarrassment is so ridiculous that it provokes a smile, and it is with anything but a threatening or angry voice that I bid them Haiti. The bold highwaymen seem only too thankful of a chance to Haiti, and they look quite confused and i fancy even ashamed of themselves as they betake themselves off up the ravine i am quite as thankful as themselves at getting off without the necessity of using my revolver for had i killed or badly wounded one of them it would probably have caused no end of trouble or vexatious delay especially in case they proved to be what i take them for instead of professional robbers moreover i might not have gotten off unscathed myself for while their ancient flintlocks were in all probability not even loaded, being worn more for appearances by the native than anything else, these fellows sometimes do desperate work with their ugly and ever-handy swords when cornered up, in proof of which we have the late dastardly assault on the British consul at Etzerum, of which we shall doubtless hear the particulars upon reaching that city before long the ravine terminates and i emerge upon the broad and smiling erzingen valley at the lower extremity